support for this episode comes from The Current Report. From data privacy to the future of TV, retail media, and beyond, the world of digital marketing is constantly in flux, so how can you keep up? Well, The Current Report is there for you. Each week, marketing leaders on the cutting edge give you the latest insight. If it's creating a buzz, they'll be talking about it. Subscribe to The Current Report wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this podcast comes from another podcast. The world's most valuable resource, it's actually data. Our data, based on our behaviors, is frequently being gathered, tracked, stored, and sold. So what does this mean for us? Join host Rafi Krikorian for season two of Technically Optimistic, where he'll take you on a deep dive into how our data is being used and what we can do about it. From social media feeds to foundational human rights, Krikorian leads us into territories both familiar and unexpected with openness and genuine curiosity. New episodes of Technically Optimistic drop every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, editor-in-chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. Today's episode is about trying to solve a very big problem with a very big idea and the trade-offs that come with it. Here's the situation. Last week, Apple, without very much warning at all, announced a new set of tools built into the iPhone designed to protect children from abuse. Siri will now offer resources to people who ask for child abuse material or ask how to report it. iMessage will now flag nudes sent or received by kids under 13 and alert their parents. And images backed up to iCloud Photos will now be matched against a database of known child sexual abuse material, or CSAM, and reported to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children if more than a certain number of images match. And here's the big idea. That matching process doesn't just happen in the cloud. Part of it happens locally, on your phone. Now, for better or worse, we've gotten used to our content being scanned and moderated in the cloud, especially when it's shared. Facebook and Instagram scan everything that's shared on their platforms and report over 20 million pieces of content to NickMick every year. Dropbox scans its platforms. Microsoft and Google scan their platforms for child abuse material. In fact, Microsoft makes photo DNA, which is the software most of these platforms use for scanning. Most every company has been scanning your data in the cloud, except for Apple, which has long resisted looking at user data in the name of privacy. Apple even markets the iPhone using privacy as a feature, puts up billboards that say what happens on your iPhone stays on your iPhone. But with this new announcement, Apple's crossed a very big bridge. In order to avoid simply scanning your photos in the cloud, Apple's system first involves your phone generating hashed signatures of all of your photos, matching those values against a database of hashes provided by NickMick that's also on your phone, and then attaching safety vouchers to those images as they're uploaded to iCloud Photos. All of this happens using a variety of complex new encryption methods designed to keep your photos and the process private from Apple. But if enough of your photos are matches, the system will flag the images, Apple will have a human review them, and pass them along to NickMick if appropriate. The trade-off is that instead of scanning images in the cloud, Apple has designed what it says is a much more private process that involves scanning images on your phone. And that is a very big line to cross. Basically, the iPhone's operating system now has the capability to look at your photos and match them up against a database of illegal content, and you cannot remove it. And while we might all agree that adding this capability is justifiable in the face of child abuse, there are huge questions about what happens when governments around the world, from the UK to China, ask Apple to match up other kinds of images. Terrorist content. Images of protests. Pictures of dictators looking silly. These kinds of demands are routinely made around the world, and until now, no part of that happened on your phone, in your pocket. Now, Apple has released multiple documents about this system, and in one of them, it says that it will absolutely resist any governmental pressure to expand the scanning capability. But Apple has to follow the law in the countries where it operates, and that means it's already caved to governmental pressure in various ways. For example, iCloud in China is run by government-owned data centers, and the Chinese government has access to encryption keys. FaceTime simply does not work in the United Arab Emirates because the government says it's illegal. 
and various laws proposed in the UK and EU might require platform providers to expand their content scanning systems in various ways. So there's a lot going on here. And when I say Apple announced this without very much warning at all, I mean that Apple just announced this. It did not really engage with very many civil liberties experts or security or privacy academics at all. And so the announcement was met with a swift and furious backlash from privacy and security experts. Edward Snowden has been tweeting about it for a week now. There's now an open letter from privacy experts with over 6,000 signatures calling on Apple to stop this plan and reaffirm its commitment to user privacy. Apple, thus far, has been on the defensive. And an internal email from the director of NCMEC referred to these critics as the screeching voices of the minority. That went about as well as you would expect. So it's heated. But it's still important to fully understand this system, how it works, and why Apple has made the trade-off of having some scanning occur on the phone as opposed to all the scanning happen in the cloud. To unpack this all, I asked Rihanna Pfefferkorn and Jennifer King to join me on the show. They're both researchers at Stanford. Rihanna specializes in encryption policy, and Jen specializes in privacy and data policy. And she's worked on child abuse issues at big tech companies in the past. Okay, Rihanna Pfefferkorn and Jennifer King, here we go. Jen King and Rihanna Peppercorn, you are both researchers at Stanford. Welcome to Decoder. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Let's start with some introductions. Rihanna, what's your title and what do you work on at Stanford? My name is Rihanna Pfefferkorn. I'm a research scholar at the Stanford Internet Observatory. I've been at Stanford in various capacities since late 2015, and I primarily focus on encryption policy. So this is really a moment in the sun for me, for better or for worse. Welcome to the light. Jen, what about you? What's your title? What do you work on? I am a fellow on privacy and data policy at the Stanford Institute for Human-Centered Artificial Intelligence. I've been at Stanford since 2018, and I focus primarily on consumer privacy issues. And so, you know, that runs the gamut across social networks, AI, you name it. If it involves data and people and privacy, it's kind of in my wheelhouse. I asked both of you to come on the show because of a very complicated new set of tools from Apple designed to protect children from harm. The announcement of those tools, the tools themselves, how they've been announced, how they've been communicated about, have generated a tremendous amount of confusion and controversy. So I'm hoping you can help me understand the tools and then understand the controversy. There's three of them. Let's go through them from simplest to most complicated. The simplest one actually seems totally fine to me. Correct me if I'm wrong. If you ask Siri on the iPhone for information on how to report child abuse, Or much more oddly, if you ask it for child abuse material, it will give you resources to either help you report it or tell you to get support for yourself. This does not seem very controversial. It also, frankly, seems very strange that Apple realized that it was getting this many inquiries to Siri, but there it is. That seems fine to me. Is that kind of the correct take on that? This seems like something that I'm not sure if this was part of their initial announcement or if they hurriedly added this after the fact once people started critiquing them for saying, oh my God, this is going to have such a terrible impact on trans and queer and closeted youth. As it stands, I don't think it's controversial. I just am not convinced that's going to be all that helpful because what they are saying is if you ask Siri, Siri, I'm being abused at home, What can I do? Siri will basically tell you, according to their documentation, go report it somewhere else. Apple still doesn't want to know about this. Note that they are not making any changes to the abuse reporting functionality of iMessage, which as I understand it is limited basically to like spam. And that's kind of it. They could have added that directly in iMessage, given that iMessage is the tool where all of this is happening. Instead, they're saying, if you just happen to go and talk to Siri about this, we will point you to some other resources that is not Apple that you can go tell them over there. Yeah, I think that question about overall effectiveness kind of pervades this entire conversation. But in terms of here's the thing, the controversy is pretty small. This one to me feels simple and seemingly the least important to focus on. The next one does have some meaningful controversy associated with it, which is if you are a child who is 13 or younger and you're on your family's iCod plan and you send or receive 
uh, nudes in iMessage, the messages app on your phone will detect it and then tell your parents if you view it. And if you're sending it, it will detect it, say, do you really want to send it? And then tell your parents if you choose to send it. This has a wide variety of privacy implications for children, a wide variety of implications, particularly for queer youth, transgender youth. At the same time, it feels to me like the controversy around this one is just how is this deployed? Who will get to use it? Will they always be operating with their children's best interest in heart? But there's no technical controversy here, right? This is a, a policy controversy as, as near as I understand. Is that right, Jen? I think so. I say that with a small hesitation because uh, I am not sure, and Rihanna may know the answer to this, where they're doing that real-time scanning to determine whether the image itself, you know, how much, I guess, the proportion of skin (laughs) it probably contains. And so I assume that's happening on the client side on the phone itself. But yeah, I mean, the most of the criticisms I've heard raised about this are some really good normative questions around what type of family and what type of parenting structure does this really seek to help? I'm a parent. You know, I have my kids' best interests at heart, but not every family, you know, operates in that way. And so I think there's just been a lot of concerns that just assuming that reporting to parents is kind of the right thing to do won't always yield the best consequences for a wide variety of reasons. Rihanna, do you have any, on the technical side, any concerns here that are not sort of like policy concerns? That's how I keep thinking about it. There's a bunch of technical stuff. We're creating capabilities and there's a bunch of policy stuff. How are we using those capabilities? This one, it really feels like, as Jen called it, a normative controversy. Their documentation is clear that they are analyzing images on device. And I know that there has been some concern that because it's not transparent from their documentation exactly how this is happening, how accurate is this image analysis going to be? What else is going to get ensnared in this that might not actually be as accurate as Apple is saying it's going to be? That's definitely a concern that I've seen from some of the people I know who work on issues of trying to help people who have been abused, you know, in their family life or by intimate partners. And it's something that honestly, I don't understand the technology uh, well enough. And I also don't think that Apple has provided enough documentation to enable reasoned analysis and thoughtful analysis. Um, That seems to be one of the trips that they've made here that they've tripped over uh, is not providing sufficient documentation to enable people to really inspect and test out their claims. Yeah, and that is absolutely a theme that runs right into the third announcement, which is this very complicated cryptographic system to check images that are uploaded to iCloud Photos for known child sexual abuse material. I'm not even going to try to explain this one. Rihanna, I'm just going to defer to you. Explain how Apple says the system works. What they're doing is, again, this will be done on the client, baked into the operating system and deployed for every uh, you know, iPhone running iOS 15 once that comes out around the world, but this will only be turned on within the United States, at least so far. There's going to be an on-device attempt to try and make a hash of images that are in the photos that you have uploaded to iCloud Photos and check the hash against the hash uh, database that is maintained by the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, or NCMEC, that contains known child sex abuse material or CSAM, with the idea being that there's not going to be a cache of actual CSAM on your phone. There's not going to be a search of everything so far on your camera roll, only if this is going into iCloud Photos. And if you have one image that is in the NCMEC database, that will not trigger review by Apple, where they will have a human in the loop to take a look. It will be some unspecified threshold number of images that have to be triggered by their system, which is more complex than I, you know, want to, to, to try and explain. So if there is sufficient, you know, they're completely like a collection of CSAM materials sufficient to cross the threshold, there will be the ability for a human reviewer at Apple to review and confirm that these are images that are part of the NCMEC database in some, you know, rather than looking at unfiltered, you know, horrific imagery, there's going to be some degraded version of the image so that they aren't going to be exposed to, you know, this really, uh, it's very traumatic for people who have to review this stuff. And then if they confirm that it is in fact, you know, CSAM, then that report goes to Nick Mick 
pursuant to Apple's duties under under federal law, and then NCMEC will involve law enforcement. One of the things that's very challenging to understand here is Apple is built it this way so they're not scanning iCloud data in the cloud. From what I understand, what they don't want to do is have people upload their photo libraries to iCloud and then scan a bunch of information in the cloud. From my understanding, other way of doing it, just doing it all in the cloud, is what the other major tech companies do, and that is kind of our expectation of what they do. Right. Although I think the use case is potentially quite different, right? It's kind of one of the interesting questions why Apple, I think, is doing this in such a, I guess, aggressive and public way, given that they were not a major source of child sexual violence imagery reporting to begin with. But, you know, when you think about these different products in the kind of online ecosystem, a lot of what you're seeing are pedophiles who are sharing these things in these very public platforms, even if they carve out little small spaces of them. And so they're usually doing it on a platform, right? Whether it's something like Facebook, WhatsApp, Dropbox, whatever it might be. And so, yes, you know, in that case, you're usually uploading imagery to the platform provider. And at that point, it's up to them whether they want to scan it in real time to see what is actually, you know, what are you uploading? You know, does it match one of these known images or known videos that NCMEC maintains a database of? That they're doing it this way is just a really interesting kind of different use case than what we often see. And I'm not sure if Rihanna has any kind of theory behind why they've decided to take this particular tactic, because it seems... I mean, when I first heard about it, the idea that I was going to have the entire NCMEC hash database sitting on my phone, I mean, obviously, you know, hashes are extremely small text files. You know, we're talking about just strings of characters that to the human eye, it just looks like garbage, right? And they don't take up a lot of memory. But at the same time, the idea that we're pushing that to everybody's individual devices was kind of shocking to me. And I'm still kind of in shock about it um, because it's just such a different use case than what we've seen before. One of the concerns that has been raised with having this kind of client-side technology being deployed is that if once you're pushing it to people's devices, it is possible, potentially, this is a concern of researchers in this space, for people to try and reverse engineer that, basically, and figure out what is in the database. There's a lot of research that's done that, you know, there's fears on one side of, well, what if something that is not CSIM gets slipped into this database? The fear on the other side is, What if people who have really strong motivations to continue trading CSAM try to defeat the database by figuring out what's in it, figuring out how they can perturb an image so that it slips past the hash matching feature? And that's something that I think is a worry, that once this is put onto people's devices rather than tackling server side, as currently happens with other technologies, such as PhotoDNA that scan uh, photos in the cloud, that you are opening up an avenue for malicious reverse engineering to try and and figure out how to continue operating unimpeded and uncaught. I read some strident statements from the EFF and others, Edward Snowden, calling this a backdoor into the iPhone. Do you think that is a fair characterization, Rihanna? Yeah, I don't like using the word backdoor because it's a very loaded term. It means different things to different people. And I don't know that I agree with that because this is all still happening on the client, right? It is very careful to not mess with their uh, end-to-end encryption for iMessage. It is a way that I agree gives a insight into what people are doing on their phone that was not there before. But I don't know whether that means that you could characterize it as a backdoor. You know, like I've heard a lot of people talking about like, does this still, does this mean it's not end-to-end encryption anymore? Does this mean it's a backdoor? I don't care. I don't care what we're calling it. That's a way of distracting from the main things that we're actually trying to talk about here, which I think are, what are the policy and privacy and free expression and data security impacts that will result from Apple's decision here? And how will that go out beyond the particular CSAM context? And will what they're doing work to actually protect children better than what they've been doing to date? So, you know, quibbling over labels is just not very interesting to me, frankly. This comes back to that efficacy question that we're we're talking about with Siri. Right now, in order to detect CSAM material, you have to, A, be somebody who has it, B, be putting it into your camera roll, and then C, uploading that to iCloud Photos. I feel like this is, you know, criminals are dumb, maybe, like they're going to get caught, but it seems very easy for anybody with even a, a moderate amount of interest to avoid the system 
thus reducing the need for this controversy at all. Right. So there's a couple things here. One is that you could take the position that Apple is being extremely defensive here and saying, essentially, hey, pedophile community, we don't want you here. (laughs) So we're going to, in a very public way, work to defeat your use of our products for that purpose, right? That may be quite effective. I want to actually add a little context here for why I'm in this conversation, which is before I worked in academia, I used to work in industry, and I worked for about two years building a tool to review CASM uh, material and detect it. When I worked on this project, it was very clear from the beginning that you know the goal was to get it off the servers of the company I was working for. Like there was no higher goal here. We were not going to somehow solve the child pornography problem. And so that's where I have that particular insight in that, you know, one of the reasons Apple could be taking the stand, one, it could be a moral issue. It could be that they've decided that they just simply do not want their product associated with this type of material, and they're going to be in a very public way, decide they're going to take a stand against it. Another, though, is very defensive, because you're right. I think that there are people for whom, if you're going to get caught using an Apple product, it's probably because you weren't necessarily, you know, extremely well-versed in all the ways to try to defeat this type of thing. So, You know, I think it's really important to remember when you talk about these issues and you think about this group of people is that they are a community. And there are a lot of different ways that you can detect this content. And I would say I would feel a lot better about this decision if I felt like what we were hearing is that kind of all other methods had been exhausted and this is kind of where we are at. And I am in no way in the belief that all of the methods have been exhausted by Apple or by the kind of the larger tech community at all, who I think has really failed on this issue, given I worked on it back in 2002 to 2004. And it's only gotten, you know, tremendously worse in that time. I mean, a lot more people have gone on the Internet since then as well. So, you know, it, it is kind of a question of scale. But I would say industry across the board has really been bad at really trying to defeat this as an issue. What are the other methods? Well, I think it's important to understand, again, like I said, this is a community of users and different communities use different products in different ways. And when you're in product design, you know, you're designing a product with particular users in mind. You know, you kind of have your optimal user groups that you, you know, want to privilege the product for, you know, who you want to attract, how you want to design the features for. And the kind of work I did to try to understand this community, it became very clear that this group of users, they know what they're doing is illegal. They don't want to get caught. And they use things very materially different than other users. And so if you're willing to put in the time to understand kind of how they operate and put in the the resources to detect them and to really see kind of how they differ from other users, they're not loading up photos to share with friends and family. Like they often, they're operating under subterfuge. You know, they know what they're doing is highly illegal. And so there's often a great deal of pressure in terms of timing, for example. One of the things I witnessed in the work I did was that the perpetrators would, you know, create accounts and basically have an upload party. Like they would use the service, you know, in an extremely high rate for an extremely short amount of time and then ditch it, ditch whatever, you know, product they were working in because they knew that they only had a limited amount of time before they would get caught. So just to say that, to just assume that you can't potentially put in more work to understand how these people use your product and that they may be detectable in ways that don't require the, the types of work that we're seeing Apple do. If I had more reassurance, they'd actually kind of done that level of research and really exhausted other options, again, I would probably feel more confident about what they're doing. And I, I don't want to just point the finger at Apple. I mean, I think this is an industry-wide problem with a real lack of devotion to resources behind it. The trouble with this particular context is how extremely unique CSAM is compared to any other kind of abusive content that a provider might encounter. It is uniquely opaque in terms of how much outside auditability or oversight or information anybody can have. You know, I mentioned earlier that there's a risk that people might be able to try and reverse engineer what's in the database of hash values to try and figure out how could they uh, subvert and sneak CSAM around the database, right? The other thing is that it's hard for us to know exactly what it is that providers are doing. As Jen was saying, there's a bunch of different techniques that they could take and different approaches that they can employ. But when it comes to what they are doing on the back end about CSAM, they are not very forthcoming because everything that they tell people to explain what is they're doing is basically a roadmap to the people who want to abuse that process and want to evade it. And so it is uniquely difficult to get information about this 
from the outside as a researcher, as a user, as you know, presumably a, a policymaker, as a concerned parent, because of this veil of secrecy that hangs over everything to do with this whole process, from what is in the database to what are different providers doing. Some of that sometimes comes out a little bit in prosecutions of people who get caught by providers for uploading and sharing CSAM on their services. You know, there will be depositions and testimony and so forth. But it's still kind of a black box. And so that makes it hard to critique, to suggest improvements, to have any kind of oversight. And that's part of the frustration here, I think, is that it's very difficult to say you just have to trust us and trust everything all the way down from at every point from Nick Mick on down and simultaneously say, you know, just know that what we're doing is not something that has other collateral harms. Because for anything outside of CSAM, you have more ambiguity and legitimate use cases and context where it matters. When it comes to CSAM, context does not matter. And that is, you know, something that I've been saying in recent days is there's no fair use for CSAM the way that there is for using copyrighted works. And so there's just this, this lack of information that makes it really difficult for folks like Jen or me or other people in civil society or other researchers to be able to comment. And it's really, you know, Jen, I'm so glad that you have this background so that you at least have both the privacy side and the understanding from the, you know, working on this uh, from the provider side to comment on. If you take that and you view it from Apple's side most charitably, well, at least Apple announced something, right? They are being transparent to a degree that, you know, we went and asked Google, hey, do you do the scanning in Google Photos? And there's no way to know. We just, I just don't know the answer to that question. I think if you went to Dropbox and asked them, they would just kind of not tell you. We assume that they are. But at least here, Apple is saying, we're doing it. Here's the method by which we're doing it. That method, that addition of capability to the iPhone is problematic in various ways, but they're copying to it and they're explaining how it works. Do they get points for that? They've certainly learned that they won't get any plaudits for that. You know, you, you've <laughs> identified that, that, you know, this might be a, a point where they've been saying other organizations scan using photo DNA in the cloud, and they do so over email. And I don't know how well understood that is by the general public that, you know, for most of the services that you use, if you are uploading photos, they are getting scanned to look for CSAM for the most part, if you're using webmail, if you're using a cloud storage provider. Dropbox absolutely does, but you're right that they are not necessarily that forthcoming about it in their documentation. And that's something that might kind of redound to the benefit of those who are trying to track down and catch these offenders is that there may be some misunderstanding or just lack of clarity about what is happening that, you know, trips up people who trade in this stuff and share and store this stuff because they don't realize that. And so I guess there's almost some question about whether Apple is kind of ensuring that there will be less CSAM on, on iCloud photos three months from now than there is today because they're being more transparent about this and about what they are doing. Yeah, there is a really complicated relationship here between the companies and law enforcement that I think bears mentioning, which is that the companies, you know, broadly are the source of all this material, you know, hands down. I don't even know if you see, you know, offline CSAM these days. Like, you know, it's it's all online and it's all being traded, you know, on the backs of these large organizations. And, you know, holding it is illegal. So every copy they hold is, you know, is a felony, essentially a criminal felony. And so... At the same time that they are the source of this material and law enforcement wants to crack down, law enforcement needs them to report it. <laughs> so there's this tension at play that I think is, you know, not necessarily well understood from the outside, but just to say that there's a bit of a symbiotic relationship here where if the companies crack down too much and force it all off their services and it, it all ends up on the dark web, you know, completely out of the reach of law enforcement without, you know, really kind of heavy investigative powers, that actually in some ways disadvantages law enforcement. So to some extent, one could argue that they need the companies to not crack down so much that it completely disappears off their services because it makes their job much harder. So there's a very weird tension here that I think needs to be acknowledged. We're going to take a break, but we'll be right back. Support for Decoder comes from Mint Mobile. 
Imagine you're at a very fancy, expensive restaurant. And as you're browsing the menu, wondering how you'll afford anything on it, you notice the filet mignon is a mere $10. At first you think jackpot, but then you immediately think, wait, what's the catch? Now, what do suspiciously cheap steaks have to do with your cell phone bill? Well, we're used to seeing quote-unquote great deals from overpriced wireless providers and also thinking, what's the catch? But with Mint Mobile, there is no catch. For a limited time, their wireless plans are just $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. You can get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just $15 a month. Go to mintmobile.com decoder. That's mintmobile.com slash decoder. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash decoder. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on an unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. One of the things that keeps coming up on Decoder is the question of who owns your phone. I've gotten the sense recently that companies like Apple and Google still believe they own an important part of your phone, even though you spent probably close to $1,000 on it. And simply changing how images and messages work at the device level underlines that for me. So listen to the way Jen says that controlling data on devices we own is simply an illusion. I'm not the only one thinking this way. It feels like one enormous aspect of this entire controversy is the fact that the scanning is being done on the device at some point. And that is the the Rubicon that has not been crossed. That up until now, your local computer has not scanned your local storage in any way. But once you hit the cloud, all kinds of scanning happens. And that's problematic, but it happens. But we have not yet entered the point where law enforcement is pushing a company to do local scanning on your phone or your computer. Is that the big bright line here that's causing all all the trouble? I view this as a paradigm shift to take where the scanning is happening from in the cloud, where you're making the choice to say, I'm going to upload these photos into iCloud. It's being held in third parties hands. You know, there's that saying that it's not the cloud, it's just somebody else's computer, right? And you're kind of assuming some level of risk in doing that, that it might be scanned, that it might be hacked, whatever. Whereas moving it down onto the device, even if right now it's only for photos that are in the cloud, I think is very different and is intruding into what we consider, I think, a more private space that we, until now, had thought we could take for granted that it would stay that way. Um, and so I do view that as as a really big conceptual shift. Not only is it a conceptual shift, not only in how people might think about this, but also from a legal standpoint there is a big difference between data that you hand over to a third party and assume the risk that they're going to turn around and report to the cops versus what you have in the privacy of your own home or in your briefcase or whatever. And so I do view that as as a big change. Yeah, I would add some of the dissonance here is the fact that we just had Apple come out with the Ask Apps Not to Track feature, you know, which was already in existence before, but they put, you know, they actually made prominent that dialog box to ask you when you or using an app, you know, if you want the app to track you. And so, you know, it seems a bit, again, dissonant that we just rolled out that feature and then suddenly we have this thing that seems almost more invasive on the phone. But I would say, you know, as someone who's been studying privacy in the mobile space for almost a decade, you know, there is already extent to which these phones aren't ours. Uh, You know, so the fact that anytime you have third-party apps downloading your data, like that's already been so much a feature of this ecosystem that I guess in some ways... It is a paradigm shift, but maybe it's a paradigm shift in the sense that 
we had areas of the phone that we maybe thought were more off limits, and now they are less so than they were before. Um, but you know, the the illusion that you've been able to control the data on your phone, I think, has been nothing more than illusion for most people um, for quite a while now. I spend a lot of time, unfortunately, listening to wireless carrier marketing materials and tech company marketing materials. I'm sorry. It's not great. Um, <laughs> but right, the idea that you have a local phone that has a networking stack that then goes and talks to a server and comes back, that is almost a, like a 1990s conception of modern devices, right? Like a, a, actually in 2021, everything in your house is always talking to the internet. And the line between the client and the server is extremely blurry to the point where we market the networks, right? We market 5G networks, not just for speed, but for capability, whether or not that's true. But that fuzziness between client and server and network means that the consumer expectation of privacy on local storage versus cloud storage, I'm wondering if like, if this is actually a line that we crossed or just because Apple announced it, we are, we are now perceiving that there should be a line. It's a great point because there are a number of people who are kind of doing the equivalent of if the election goes the wrong way, I'm going to move to Canada by saying, oh, I'm just going to abandon Apple devices and move to Android instead. But Android devices are basically kind of just a local version of your Google Cloud. I don't know if that's better. And at least you can you know, fork Android. And I, I wouldn't want to run a, a forked version of Android that I sideloaded from some sketchy place. But we're talking about a possibility that people just don't necessarily understand the different ways that the different architectures of their phone works. And you make a really good point. And you know, a point that I've made before is that people's rights, people's privacy, people's free expression, that shouldn't depend upon a consumer choice that they made at some point in the past. That shouldn't be path dependent for the rest of time for whether or not they're data that they have on their phone is really theirs or whether it actually is held in the cloud. But you're right that as the border becomes blurrier, it becomes both harder to reason about these things kind of from arm's length and also becomes harder and harder for just average people to understand and make choices accordingly. Right. And privacy shouldn't be a market choice. You know, I think it's a market failure for the most part across, across industry. A lot of the assumptions we had going into the internet in the early 2000s was that privacy could be a competitive value. I and mean, we do see a few you know, companies competing on it. DuckDuckGo comes to mind, for example, on search. But bottom line, privacy shouldn't be left up to, I think, or at least many aspects of privacy shouldn't be left up to the market. There's another tension that I want to explore with both of you, which is the sort of generalized surveillance tension around encryption and Apple specifically. Apple famously will not unlock iPhones for law enforcement, or at least they they won't do it here. They say they don't do it in other countries like China. They have wanted to encrypt the whole of iCloud, and famously the FBI talked them out of it. And in China, they've just handed over the iCloud data centers to the Chinese government, and the Chinese government contains those keys. So they're all over the place in terms of how they are dealing with encryption. I know and I believe what they want to do is encrypt everything and just wash their hands of it and walk away and say, it's our customer's data, it's private, it's up to them. They cannot for various reasons. Do you think that tension has played into this system as it is currently architected where they could just say, we're scanning all the data in the cloud directly and handing it over to the FBI or NCMEC or whoever, but instead they want to encrypt that data so they've now built this other ancillary system that does a little bit of local hashing comparison against a table in the cloud. It generates these complicated security vouchers, and then it reports to NCMEC if you pass a threshold. All of that seems like at some point they're going to want to encrypt the cloud, and this is the first step towards a deal with law enforcement, at least in this country. I had heard that idea from someone else I'd talked to about this and mentioned it to my colleague at SIO, Alex Stamos. And Alex is convinced that this is you know, a prelude to announcing end-to-end encryption for iCloud later on. Certainly, it seems to be the case that even at present, however it is that they are encrypting iCloud data at rest for photos, that that somehow makes it in their words, and this is you know, what they have said, too difficult to decrypt everything that's in the cloud, scan it for CSAM, 
and do that at scale. And so it's actually more efficient and in Apple's opinion, more privacy protective to do this on this client side architecture instead. I don't know enough about the different ways that Dropbox encrypts their cloud, that Apple encrypts its cloud, that Microsoft encrypts its cloud versus how iCloud does it to know whether Apple is in fact doing something different that it makes it uniquely hard for them to scan in the cloud the way that other entities do. But certainly I think that looming over all of this is that there has been several years worth of encryption battles, not just here in the US, but around the world, primarily focused in the last couple of years on child sex abuse material. But prior to that, it was terrorism. And there's always concerns about other types of material as well. And so one thing that I think is kind of a, a specter that's looming over this move by Apple is that they may see this as something where they can provide some kind of, of compromise through doing this and hopefully preserve the legality of device encryption and of end-to-end -end encryption writ large and maybe try and rebuff efforts that we have seen, including in the US even just last year, to effectively ban strong encryption from being legal for providers like Apple to offer to their users whatsoever. And so this might be, you know, if we give an inch, maybe they won't take a mile, might be kind of what they're thinking here. I've seen a lot of pushback against that idea. I, Just to be honest, personally, I, if the outcome is the same, right, there's scanning done of stuff you put on the cloud, I think... That is the consumer expectation. Once you upload something to somebody else's server, they can look at it. They can, I don't know, copyright strike it. They can scan it for CSAM. That stuff is going to happen once you give your data away to a cloud provider. That does feel like a consumer expectation in 2021. Whether that is good or bad, I just think it's the expectation. It seems like this is a very complicated mechanism to accomplish the same goal of just scanning in the cloud. But because it is this very complicated mechanism, that is given an inch so they won't take a mile, the controversy seems to be they're not just going to take the inch, right? Governments around the world will now ask you to expand this capability in various ways that maybe the United States government won't do, but certainly the Chinese government or the Indian government or other more oppressive governments would certainly take advantage of. Is there a backstop here for Apple to not expand the capability beyond CSAM? So this is my primary concern. And the direction that I think this is going is we, we don't have ready to go hash databases for hashes of images of other types of abusive content besides CSAM, with the exception of terrorist and violent extremist content. There's a database called GIFCT, G-I-F-C-T, that is an industry collaboration to you know, collaboratively contribute imagery to a database of terror and violent extremist content largely arising out of the Christchurch shooting a few years back, which really woke up a new wave around the world of concern about providers hosting terrorist and violent extremist material on their services. And so my prediction is that the next thing that Apple will be pressured to do will be to deploy the same thing for GIFCT as they are currently doing for the NCMEC database of hashes of CSAM. And from there on, I mean, you can put anything you like into a hash you know, image database. And my thinking is that, you know, Apple has just said, if we are asked to do this for anything but CSAM, we simply will not. That's fine, but why should I believe you? Previously, their slogan was, what happens on your iPhone stays on your iPhone. And now that's not true, right? And my thinking has been, they might abide by that where they think that the reputational trade-off is not worth the upside. But if the distinction, if choice is between Either you implement this, you know, hash database of images that this particular government doesn't like, or you lose access to our market and you will never get to sell a Mac or an iPhone in this country again. For a large enough market like China, I think that they will fold. India is one place that a lot of people have pointed to. India has a billion people. They actually are not that big of a market for iPhones, at least commensurate with the size of the market that currently exists in China. But the EU is. The European Union is a massive market for Apple, and the EU just barely got talked off the ledge from having an upload filter mandate for copyright infringing material pretty recently. And there are rumblings that they're going to introduce a similar plan for CSAM at the end of this year. And so for a large enough market, basically, it's hard to see how Apple 
you know, thinking of their shareholders, not just of their users' privacy or of the good of the world, continues taking that stand and says, no, we're not going to do this for whatever it is they're confronted with. Maybe if it's Les Majesté laws in Thailand that say you are banned from letting people share pictures of the king in a crop top, which is a real thing, maybe they'll say, eh, you know, this, this market isn't worth the hit that we would take on the world stage. But if it's the EU, I don't know. We'll be back with more from Rihanna Peppercorn and Jen King. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And we're back. So let's say the EU does, they were going to implement this upload filter. If they say we need an upload filter for CSAM and Apple's already built it and it preserves encryption, isn't that the correct trade-off? I think that there are absolutely a lot of folks that you could talk to who would quietly admit that they might think that if this really did get limited only ever to CSAM for real, that might be a compromise that they could live with. Even though we're talking about moving surveillance down into your device, and really there's no limitation on them from only doing this for iCloud photos, it could be on your camera roll next. I think that, you know, if we really believed that this would not move beyond CSAM, there are a lot of folks who might be happy with that trade-off. Going back to your question about what a backstop might be, though, to keep it from going up beyond CSAM, this goes back to what I mentioned earlier about how CSAM is really unique among types of abuse. And once you're talking about literally any other type of, of content, you're necessarily going to have an impact on free expression values, on news, commentary, documentation of human rights abuses, all of these things. Um, and that's why there's already been a lot of criticism of the GIF-CT database that I mentioned and why it would be supremely difficult to build out a database of images that are hate speech, whatever that means, ask the Germans, I don't know, much less something that is copyright infringing. There is nothing that is only ever, you know, illegal and there's no legitimate context except for CSAM, as I was saying earlier. So I think that that is a backstop that Apple could potentially try to point to. But just because, you know, it would trample free expression and human rights to do this for anything else, I don't necessarily know that that's something that's going to stop governments from demanding it. There's a database of images that exist that are just illegal. And you can't have them and you can't look at them. And there's no value towards even pointing at them and saying, look at this for things like scholarship or research or all the other kinds of exceptions we have. But a database of images of terrorism, video of the Christchurch shooting, there are fuzzier boundaries there, right? There are legitimate reasons for some people to have that video or to have other terrorism-related content, to report on it, to talk about it, to analyze it. And because of that is a fuzzier set, it's inherently more dangerous to implement these kinds of filters. I would argue that your example points to one of the easiest sure. <laughs> easiest examples of that whole genre and that it's much harder from kind of those extreme examples to work backwards to what is terrorism versus what are, you know, groups, you know, engaging in rightful protest on terrorism-related issues, for example. The line drawing becomes much, much harder. And I think... Also, to kind of add to you know, some context to what Rihanna is saying, I mean, we are very much talking about, you know, about kind of the U.S. and the fact that we, this content is illegal in the U.S. 
In Europe, those boundaries, I think, are much broader because they're not operating under the First Amendment. And I'm not a lawyer, so I'm definitely speaking a little bit outside my lane. But there isn't the same free speech absolutism in the EU, obviously, because they don't have the First Amendment as we have here in the U.S., and so the EU has been much more willing to try to draw lines uh, around particular content that we don't do here. I think that there are regimes in different countries for the protection of fundamental rights that look a little different from our constitution, but they exist. And so when there have been laws or surveillance regimes that would infringe upon those, there are other mechanisms where people have brought challenges and where some things have been struck down as being incompatible with people's uh, fundamental rights as recognized in other countries. And, you know, it's just, it's very difficult to engage in that line drawing, whether it's human rights abuse documentation that is also counts as terrorism, if you look at it a particular way, or whether, you know, a lot of the research that I also do besides encryption, I have like a side hustle talking about deep fakes. And there is absolutely, I think, a lot of interest in trying to figure out, okay, how do we keep mis and disinformation from undermining democracy, from hurting vaccine rollout efforts, and also from, you know, having deep fakes influence an election, right, for example. It would be real easy for, this is what uh, law professors Daniel Citrin and Bobby Chesney call the liar's dividend, it's real easy for a government that does not like evidence of something that actually happened, something that is true and authentic but inconvenient for them, to say, that's fake news, that is a deep fake, this is going in our database of hashes of deep fakes that we're going to make you implement in our country. So there's all of these different issues that, that get brought up on, on the free expression side once you're talking about anything other than child sex abuse material, where even there, it takes a special safe harbor under the federal law that applies to make it okay for providers to have this on their services. As Jen was saying, otherwise, that is just a, a felony, and you have to report it. If you don't report it, you don't get the safe harbor, and that provider is also a felon. You know, National Center for Missing Exploited Children is the only entity in America that is allowed to have this stuff. And I think there are some debates going on in different places right now about whether there are legitimate applications for using CSAM to train AI and ML models. Is that a permissible use? Is that re-victimizing the people who are depicted? Or would it have an upside in helping better detect other images? Because the more difficult side of this is detecting new imagery rather than detecting known imagery that's in a hash database. So, you know, even there, that's a really, you know, hot button issue there. But, you know, it, it gets back to Jen's point, which is, you know, if you start from the fuzzy cases and, and, and work backwards, Apple could sort of say, like, we're not going to do this for anything other than CSAM because there's never going to be agreement on anything else other than this particular database. Apple also has said they are not compiling the hash databases, you know, the image databases themselves. They're taking what is handed to them, a list of hashes, you know, that NCMEC provides or that other child safety groups in other countries provide. If they don't have visibility into what is in those databases, then again, you know, it's just as much of a black box to them as it is to anybody else. And this has been a problem with GIF-CT that we don't know what's in it. And we don't know, does this contain important human rights documentation or uh, news or commentary or whatever, rather than just something that everybody can agree nobody should ever get to look at ever, not even, you know, consenting adults. Right. So you're saying the danger there is there's a child safety organization in some corrupt country and... Uh, the dictator of that country says there's eight photos of me sneezing and I just want them to not exist anymore. Add them to the database. Apple will never know that it's being used in that way, but the photos will be detected and potentially reported to the authorities. Well, Apple is saying one of the protections against non-CSAM uses of this is that they have a human in the loop who reviews matches, you know, if there is a hit for a sufficiently large collection of CSAM, they will take a look and be like, yep, that matches the NCMEC databases. If they're, what they're looking at is the Thai king and a crop top, then they can say, what the heck? No, this isn't CSAM. And supposedly that's going to be another further layer of, of protection. I think that I have already started seeing some concerns, though, about like, well, what if there's a secret court order that tells NCMEC? to stick something in there and then Nick Mc employees have to just, you know, go along with it somehow. That seems like something that could be happening now, given that like photo DNA is based off of hashes that Nick Mc provides even now for scanning, you know, Dropbox and whatever. And so this is really, you know, highlighting how it's just trust all the way down. 
You have to trust the device. You have to trust the people who are providing it and the software to you. You have to trust NickMic. And it's really kind of revealing the feet of clay that I think is kind of underpinning the whole thing. We thought our devices were ours. And Apple had taken pains during Apple versus FBI to say, your device is yours. doesn't belong to us. Now it looks like, well, maybe the device really is still Apple's after all, or at least the software on it. Yeah, this brings me to just the way they've communicated about this, which we were talking about briefly before we started recording. You both mentioned big media debates happening in civil society organizations with policymakers, with academics, with researchers about how to handle these things, about the state of encryption, about the various trade-offs. It does not appear that Apple engaged those debates in a substantive way before rolling this out. Do you think if they had or if they had been more transparent members of that community that the reaction wouldn't have been quite so heated? I think part of it is the fact that Apple rolled this out with maybe a one day's heads up to some people in civil society orgs and maybe some media one day before their announcement isn't helpful. Like nobody was brought into this process while they were designing this to tell them, you know, here are the concerns that we have for queer 12-year-olds. Here are the concerns for privacy. Here are the civil liberties and the human rights concerns, all of that. It looks like this was just rolled out as a fait accompli on no notice with, I have to say, really confusing messaging given that there are these three different components and it was easy to conflate the first two of them and get mixed up about what was happening. And that has further caused a lot of hand-wringing and wailing and gnashing of teeth. But if they had involved elements of civil society other than presumably NCMEC itself and probably law enforcement agencies, maybe some of the worst could have been averted or maybe they would have ignored everything that we would have said and just gone forth with the thing that they're doing it as is. But, you know, as Jen and I can tell you, like Jen and I have both been consulted before by tech companies who have something that impacts upon privacy things and they'll, you know, preview that for us in a meeting and take our feedback. Um, and that's standard practice for tech companies. At least at some point, if you don't really care what people's feedback is, then you roll it out later and later in the process where you get feedback from, from people. But if they had really wanted to minimize the free expression and privacy concerns, then they should have consulted with outsiders. Even if there are voices they thought that would be too screechy, as the executive director of NCMEC called everybody who expressed any kind of reservation about this, even if they didn't want to talk to what Apple might think is somehow the lunatic fringe or whatever, they could have talked to more moderate voices. They could have talked to academics. They could have talked to me, although I'm probably too screechy for them, and at least taken an, an, those concerns back and thought about them. But they didn't. So that's... A wide-ranging look at it. We've heard about the controversy. We've heard about the criticism. Do you think Apple responds to that in any meaningful way? Do you think they back off this plan, or is this just shipping in iOS 15, as they've said? I think the image hashing match shifts. I don't know about the kind of the nanny cam again, for a lack of a better <laughs> word. Um, we need to call it something. I'm not sure if that one sticks, but I, I predict that they will double down on the. CASM image scanning for all the different reasons we've talked about today. I think, you know, Rihanna really hit the nail on the head. I mean, I think there's some very kind of political strategizing going on behind the scenes here. And that if they are trying to take a bigger stand on encryption overall, that this was the piece that they had to kind of give up to law enforcement or, in order to do so. I do agree with Jen that I think certainly for the stuff about Siri that is uncontroversial, they'll keep rolling that out. I'm not certain, but it seems like the iMessage stuff, either it wasn't messaged clearly at the beginning, or maybe they really did change over the course of the last few days in terms of what they said they were going to do. If that is true, and I'm not sure whether it is, then that indicates that maybe there is some room to at least make some tweaks. However, the fact that they rolled out this whole plan as a fait accompli that's going to be put into iOS 15 at the very end, you know, without any consultation, suggests to me that they are definitely going to go forward uh, with these plans. With that said, you know, it might be that there may be some silver lining in the fact that civil society was not consulted at any point in this process, that now maybe there's an opportunity to use this concerted blowback as a way to try and, and get pushback in that might not have been possible had civil society been looped in all along the way and, you know, kind of incorporated and, and neutralized almost uh, in, in that sense. So, you know, I'm, I'm not sanguine about the odds of them just not deploying this CSAM thing at all. And, you know, like 
don't get me wrong, I would love to be wrong with the slippery slope arguments that the next thing will be demanding this for GIF CT and then it'll be Les Majeste and deep fakes and copyright infringement. I would love to be proved wrong about that, even as, as silly as it would make me look. But I'm not sure that that's, that that's going to be the case. I guess we're going to find out. Apple is certainly more responsive than they were before. They are issuing FAQs left and right now. So we'll see how it goes. But I really appreciate the time from both of you. I feel like I learned a lot. This is a very complicated topic, and I feel like we could go for another hour. But I'll give you the time back. Thank you both for being on Decoder. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks again to Jen King and Rihanna Peppercorn for taking the time to talk today. This episode came together pretty quickly, so that was very nice of them. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of the show. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com or hit me up directly. I'm at Reckless on Twitter. If you like Decoder, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Creighton D. Simone, Alexander Charles Adams, and Andrew Marino. We are edited by Callie Wright. Our music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. We'll see you next time.